0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: There are few thinkers who engender as much debate about their legacy as Leo Strauss, 1899 to 1973. His critics and biographers don't even agree about what scholarly discipline he practiced, political theory or philosophy. Was he a proto-neoconservative or a middle-of-the-road Cold War defender of liberal democracy? He is often depicted as a major intellectual influence on sections of the national security state right, especially during the presidency of George W. Bush, when he was portrayed as a puppeteer pulling from the graves the strings of such notable hawks as Paul Wolfowitz. But the writings of Strauss often go unexamined. This is partly because they lean towards the abstruse. Strauss was not a general audience-friendly public intellectual in his day, and much of the homage to and attacks on him at this point take place in the pages of academic journals and in the halls of think tanks." We are fortunate, therefore, that we can turn to the 2021 book Leo Strauss on Democracy, Technology, and Liberal Education by Timothy W. Burns for elucidation of Strauss's thinking about how we can preserve liberal democracy in the face of apathy from moderates, classical liberals, and traditional conservatives flummoxed by the rise of an aggressive left that questions whether the United States is a democracy at all and an alienated alt-right that regards liberal democracy as now practiced as a character-sapping anachronism leading to civilizational decline. We learn from Burns of Strauss's admiration for Winston Churchill on touting of him as an exemplar of greatness within democracy. In one of the most absorbing sections of the book, we learn of a 1941 lecture by Strauss entitled German Nihilism, in which he examined the arguments of such groups as German rightist students in the 1920s that liberal democracy fostered moral mediocrity. Burns contrasts in details the idea of Strauss and Martin Heidegger and shows that Strauss foresaw that the other man's emphasis on resoluteness would metastasize into Heidegger's support for Nazism. Burns tells us that Strauss can speak to us today via his call to defend democratic constitutionalism and his spiritual and religious traditions. That call can lead to charges of elitism against Strauss because it entailed his championing of the idea of an aristocracy within democracy, a cadre of cultivated, well-educated leaders who would help maintain the intellectual and cultural moorings of democracies. Let's hear now from Professor Burns about who Leo Strauss was and what he actually wrote and thought. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Timothy W. Burns, the author of the 2021 book, Leo Strauss on Democracy, Technology, and Liberal Education. Thank you for joining us today, Tim.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Hope. It's a great pleasure to be here.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed the book, and I'm eager to discuss it. Let's start out with the obvious question who was Leo Strauss? Before I read your book, all that I really knew about him was his name often popped up in articles about conservative and, and conservatism and conservative thought. But I never quite grasped as to why a scholar who wrote primarily for academic audiences was so important to some of the movers and shakers in the conservative intellectual world. And even in that milieu, he's a figure of some controversy. Tell us about him, please.
0: Well, let me start with some biographical background. Strauss lived from 1899 to 1973. As you said, he was a German-born Jewish-American political philosopher, who revived the study of political philosophy in the 20th century. As an adolescent, he was immersed in Hermann Cohen's neo-Kantianism. And then after serving the German army for a year and a half, he began attending the University of Marburg, where he met Hans-Georg Gadamer and Jacob Klein who both subsequently studied with Martin Heidegger. In 1921, he went to Hamburg where he wrote his doctoral thesis under Ernst Cassirer. In 1922, he went to Freiburg to study with Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology. But he also attended lecture courses given by Martin Heidegger, Husserl's student. His first book, Spinoza's Critique of Religion was published in 1930. The work introduced him to various German Jewish intellectuals, such as Hannah Arendt. Others whom he met at the time and with whom he later carried on vigorous exchanges were Karl Liveth, Gerhard Kruger, Gershom Scholem, Hans Jonas, Emil Fackenheim, and Paul Krauss. He was also engaged in a critical discourse with Karl Schmidt. In 1932, he left Germany for Paris, where he became friends with the Marxist Tegelian Alexander Kozhev, who had also studied with Heidegger, and Strauss was also on friendly terms with Raymond Aron and Alexandre Coiré. He moved to England in 1934, and then immigrated to New York in 1937 and worked mostly at the New School for Social Research, where so many German Jews found refuge, including Kurt Rietzler, another student of Heidegger who broke with Heidegger. In 1949, Strauss joined the political science faculty at the University of Chicago, where he taught until 1969. And he then spent a year at Claremont Men's College and three years at St. John's College at Annapolis. He died in 1973, having published 15 books and numerous articles in scholarly journals. As I mentioned, he revived the study of political philosophy. We could say that there are five clear themes discernible in his writings. The theological political problem, esoteric writing, the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, historicism, and the crisis of our time. And so perhaps we can touch on some of those today.
1: I didn't realize that he was, a, he, re, he rejuvenated the field of political philosophy. That's useful to know.
0: How did yes, you think the, the term was rarely used before Strauss?
1: Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Thank you. How did you first become, in, how did you become first interested in Strauss and what appeals to you in his work?
0: Well, I went to Boston College for my undergraduate education, expecting to become a lawyer, <laughs> but was fortunate enough to study with a number of Strauss's students there, Ernest Fortin, David Lowenthal, Robert Faulkner, Christopher Bruhl, and Robert Sigliano. And I became friends with many of the graduate students there as well. It was the serious way in which they studied old books bringing them alive by showing how they grappled with permanent human questions. of Justice, God, necessity, human nobility, happiness, and so on. That's what most attracted me. And I soon discovered Strauss through them. He had died three years before I encountered his work. Hmm.
1: For the benefit of our listeners, uh, could you tell us what you mean by the word technology in the title of your book? Could you discuss, for example, Strauss is concerned that science had become value-free. You quote him as saying in a lecture, for instance, you all know that the assertion that value judgments are impermissible to the science in general and to the social scientist in particular, but is that even true anymore in terms of value-free, given that the rise of the left in the last decade or so, value judgments are in the ascendant that it seems to me that they see, and they tend to be woke ones. <laughs> Do you think that Strauss was wrong to argue for values-free science? After all, his, his values are not the prevailing ones at this point, so maybe that's not a great, Not, not values-free is not desirable.
0: Okay, good. Uh, let me try to take your many questions in <laughs> What does Strauss mean by technology? It's the deployment of modern theoretical science for the purpose of what Francis Bacon famously called the conquest of nature, in order to relieve man's estate, as Bacon put it. And we tend to take for granted that the purpose of science is to make our lives collectively better. Companies like DuPont and Honeywell advertise themselves in this way as do universities, but it wasn't always so. Science, or as it was known in the ancient world, philosophy mm. thought to have had as its end, understanding, not transformation of the given world. Mm. And its practice was thought to be something rare and certainly not to be an authority for political life. Modern science famously involves a complete change of approach. The old science is called barren. The new science would be productive. The old science had reason to treat our perceptual access to the given world as genuine. The new science set out instead to torture nature, as Bacon puts it. to look for hidden regularities by first subjecting nature to controlled experiments with instruments that offered microscopic and telescopic perceptions and attempting after induction to find regularities or so-called laws, natural laws, necessities that could be used to replicate strange things and reorder the given world to our liking. I could go on, but anyone who reads, say, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, published in 1626, will see that the aims of this new science were very imperial and broad. As he says, the effecting of all things possible, including the production of submarines, aircraft, lasers, what we would call genetic manipulation, pharmaceuticals, bombs, prolongation of life, and so on. They're all spelled out in the fourth part of the New Atlantis. But broadly, we can say that it's the conquest of nature for the relief of man's estate. That's what technology is. The second, you ask about value-free science. Now, one could say that the new science was, from the start, value-free in one respect. It saw no need to accept the forms of things as they were given but rather to transform them in accordance with human wishes. And this carried over into political science, first in Hobbes and his Resolutive Compositive Method for the solution to human strife, for the establishment of peace, so that we could all pursue our self-interested desires with reasonable hope of obtaining them. But with Hobbes and his successions, there was still the presentation of natural rights or justified moral claims at the heart of this new political science. I won't go into the development in German philosophy with Kant and Hegel especially, that wrestled with the fact that the new science presented a world governed by necessities and therefore threatened the moral life and how they attempted to overcome this. I'll simply say that the fact value distinction came to be spoken of in social science when it became clear, especially with the introduction of non-Euclidean geometry into the new mathematical physics, that the new science could no longer claim to offer any guidance based on our common sense perception of the world. And it had nothing to do with that perception and could not even claim that the new scientific understanding was superior to the non-scientific understanding. Further, the scientific understanding tended clearly to deprive the world of meaning and significance. So the the dichotomy between life and truth came into focus, especially in the work of Nietzsche. Values, that is what human beings had formerly considered the moral truths by which we could take our bearings. These came to be seen by everyone as human creations. Hmm. Nietzsche attempted to offer a way out of what he saw emerging from this situation, namely nihilism, the will to nothing. One of those who took Nietzsche's work very seriously, Max Weber, made this fact-value distinction axiomatic for social research, claiming that science could be followed only as a vocation, that intellectual probity didn't allow one to sacrifice science, but that even so, reason could not establish that the way of scientific reason was the right way, and that, as Weber indicated, high religions offered lives of superior nobility and devotion to science. Hmm. Only facts, said Weber, could be scientifically established, though he admitted that even the guiding questions of social science were driven by values. And the fact-value distinction does remain central to the practice of social science. What Strauss called for was a rational, evaluating social science. That's far removed from wokeism. Hmm. Wokeism denounces rational inquiry. Wokeism is in truth based on relativism. It's a form of what Strauss called fanatical obscurantism. It forecloses debate. By making not reason, but rather the subjective feelings of its proponents mm. into the arbiter of what is to be permitted.
1: Hmm. Thank you very much. Um, I made a mistake because I said I didn't know that about uh, uh, Strauss being the uh, rec- famous for his recovery of classical political philosophy because that is the very first sentence in the introduction to your book, and I should have looked at my own notes to say I did. I do know that because you told me that so. But I'd like to now discuss the word democracy in the title of your book. You say, as I say, the exact quote in your book is, Leo Strauss is famous for his recovery of classical political philosophy. This does not initially bespeak a friend of democracy. And what what do you mean by that? Could you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, As I go on to say, Strauss recognized that the classical political philosophy that he had recovered did not consider democracy the best regime, the best political order. Mm especially owing to the problem of economic or material scarcity in the ancient world and the lack of moral formation and refinement in which that scarcity left most people. One finds Aristotle, for example, recognizing the people's claim to deserve participation in political life or what we would perhaps call dignity. But the question of who deserves to rule who has the manifest virtues or excellences that would make them good rulers, which includes the question of devotion to the common good, that leads to a much more complicated picture than we citizens of liberal democracy may wish were the case.
1: Hmm. Thank you very much. Now we'll get into some of of Strauss's writings in particular. Your book is structured around around what you refer to as the four writings. They are entitled, What is Liberal Education, German Nihilism, Liberal Education and Responsibility, and the Liberalism of Classical Political Philosophy? I'd like to give the readers an overview of the organization of the book. And let's start with two with the two writings on liberal education. Let's begin with the word liberal. How does Strauss use that word, in the sense of liberal arts or politically
0: yes, or temperamentally? Good. It's in the sense that's conveyed by the term liberal arts, yes, that's a good place to begin. The liberal arts and sciences were those studies that were once upon a time thought to be needed for and appropriate for a free human being. That is a liber, somebody capable of self-rule and not required to be commanded by someone else. Mm. So Strauss says liberal education is an education in culture or toward culture. But by that, he doesn't mean anything snobbish. In fact, in a course given in 1959, he notices that Plato derides Calicles in, in a dialogue called the Protagoras, or presents him rather as what Strauss calls a culture vulture.
1: <laughs>
0: By education in, in culture or toward culture, Strauss means an education that aimed to produce a cultivated human being, <laughs> one who's given what's needed to become full, thriving, flourishing specimen of humanity, an education that broadened and deepened the soul and its capacity for reflection and prudence and moderation and awareness. He goes on to contrast this with education that's informed by the notion of cultures in the plural, which is based on the fact value distinction and is behind the current trend in multicultural education, and behind the current trend of departments in academia renaming themselves with the word hmm. "cultures" or "studies" in their titles.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. That's a, that's that's, been, that's the, there were certain resurgences that from, from the nineteen seventies there was ethnic studies, and now again gender studies, and so forth. Um, speaking of virtues, or and and the general cultivation of the soul and the and the spirit and the character, you make the point that Strauss felt that the success of a democracy depended upon a virtuous citizenry. Could you discuss his concept of virtue and where we stand with virtue these days in American democracy? Has has the word has, so even the word virtue disappeared from our national discourse, and have those who have bec- use it become figures of fun and derision? You don't often hear in this midterm season. You don't hear people saying, "Let's have more virtue." <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. Well, this is a good question. I mean, 30 years ago, I might have said the term virtue is moribund. Mm. But virtue is reappearing increasingly Mm. in our public discourse. And in in philosophy departments, there are now even faculty who specialize in what they call virtue ethics. Mm. And of course, people still refer to virtues all the time without using the word virtue. And they say someone's moderate or generous or courageous or witty or prudent or or urbane or fair-minded. Strauss was concerned, especially that in, in democracy, the social virtues, those that make one able to get along with others or to be counted as a nice guy or gal, that those are prized at the expense of the virtues that allow one to be a genuine individual. Virtues that sometimes require solitude or the ability to face serious opposition. Well, maybe the observation made frequently today that there are very few genuine eccentrics in contemporary academia would be a case in point. They mostly want to talk about TV shows.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, in, in, in you said that Strauss was not a snob, but i give a tiny little pushback against that because you mentioned he had disdain for popular culture at sometimes his writing you quote him for example as poking fun at citizens who read only the sports section in the comics and i thought that was kind of funny because it it presupposes that there were newspapers then when his in his heyday the chicago tribune the chicago <clears throat> newspapers were huge and influential but these days newspapers are struggling could discuss some, some we're, were the difference between his view of cultivation versus what might be accused of elitism a little bit in sure. his character.
0: Well, uh, let's uh, notice that Strauss doesn't condemn reading the sports section or comics, but reading only
1: these—they're
0: mm. entertainment. That's a type. good
1: point. I didn't—I re- didn't make that distinction.
0: They're part of relaxation, and the beauty of sports is that it's fierce combat with no real consequences. It's a hobby and a distraction. And that's a further step away, you could say, from Hegel's and later Nietzsche's claim that the morning newspaper has replaced the morning prayer. Hmm. As Strauss put it by way of explanation of that passage, not every day the same thing, the same reminder of men's absolute duty and exalted destiny, but every day something new with no reminder of duty and exalted destiny specialization, knowing more and more about less and less, Mm. practical impossibility of concentration upon the very few essential things upon which man's wholeness entirely depends, the specialization compensated by sham universality, by the stimulation of all kinds of interests and curiosities without true passion, the danger of universal Philistinism and creeping conformism, and I'll add that there may be some contemporary forms of poetry broadly understood that are popular and that actually examine permanent human questions in depth, not just novels, but also films and even TV series.
1: Well, I was going to say in terms of, you, you also talk about Strauss's view of, of how he how he conveyed himself and his ideas in, in, in his writings. And you refer to the, his concept of, Perfect gentlemanship. And I wonder on, on that point, it's kind of interesting because you make a point that in in his review of the of the book uh, by a scholar called Eric Havelock in 1957, a book called The Liberal Temper in Greek Politics, which Tross himself thought was not even a particularly good book, but he just Thumped him and went to, to town at great, great extravagance and uh, length. That, that, that what he considered himself wasn't a very good book. So, can you explain why why he did that and what was it about Havelock's book that that he saw as a danger? And was he right about what Havelock was what what Havelock um, symbolized in Strauss's eyes? And who was Havelock?
0: Well, Havelock, at the time that Strauss was writing that review, was teaching classics at Harvard. After the review, Havelock went to Yale hmm. and uh, became tenured there. This often happened, I am told, with Strauss's reviews of books. Um, it was one by a man named Wilde that Strauss reviewed also quite severely. And Wilde of course got tenure. So
1: yeah, I was gonna say he actually he helped the people by taking this seriously, I guess yeah, that
0: was yeah. the point. The joke was, you know, can you review my book so I can get tenure. <laughs> Um, but you, you ask a lot of questions at once, really. I hope you're a Gatling gun. So let oh, me try sorry. my hand at a few of these. Um, first, concerning that review of Havelock, as uh, we, we know something about why Strauss did it, because he wrote in a letter to his student, Seth Benardetti, that although it was an awful work, uh, he, he was going to take the review as an opportunity to elaborate on some of the footnotes to his book titled Natural Right and History, which had come out three years earlier. And as he says in the conclusion of the review, the study of the classics, which should be, this is by way of, of explaining why he's written such a, a review, why he bothered, is mm-hmm. the study of the classics, which should be a bulwark against barbarism, is itself becoming barbarized. And that brings me to the uh, additional question you raise: What is barbarism's opposite? That is perfect gentlemanship.
1: Mm.
0: That's a term that's actually a rough translation of the Greek kalos kagatos, noble and good. Um, was Strauss linked to such gentlemen personally? I think the best access to that, to an answer to that question, is his long tribute to Kurt Riesler which I highly recommend. May, may I read a section of that to your readers?
1: Sure, could you Joe, Could you explain who, who he was writing about?
0: Who he... Sure, Riesler was um, one of those that I mentioned who had studied with Heidegger and whom Strauss joined at the New School for Social Research. Riesler actually had been a high official in uh, the German State Department, the equivalent of the State Department under the Kaiser. Oh. And um, had left Germany, um, had already written a work actually on in- international relations um, and subsequently a work on Plato um, and, and um, a work on art, oh. um, among other things. Um, but I, I think that this, the statement on Riesler. So Strauss was with Riesler for about 10 years at the New School. Mm -hmm. Um, In the first paragraph to this, the the work is just called Kurt Riesler, Um, and in its first paragraph Strauss says this, though he was my friend, though I am familiar with most of his writings, I cannot say I've mastered the full subtlety of his thinking. And I'm embarrassed, not only by the inadequacy of my knowledge. Riesler was not only a thinker and writer, he was equally a man of action. He was above all, a human being of rare breadth and depth. To pay him adequate tribute, one should do more than analyze his thought. One should also describe him in action. Bring to light the man himself. This would require gifts of narration and characterization that are beyond my powers." But Strauss makes the effort. And I really think it's worth hearing the result if your listeners want to know what Strauss means by the perfect gentleman. Because it conveys by a particular example what Strauss had in mind as an outstanding product of a liberal education. Here's what he says. Before I present my considerations on Riesler the scholar, I want to mention that Riesler, more than anyone else among my acquaintances, represented to me the virtue of humanity. I believe he was formed by Goethe more than by any other master. His interests and sympathies extended to all fields of worthy human endeavor. He could easily become an outstanding scholar in a great variety of fields, but he preferred to be a truly educated man rather than a specialist. The term professor does not designate anything as him, but the term gentleman does. Hmm. The activity of his mind had the character of noble and serious employment of leisure, not of harried labor. And this wide range, his wide-ranging interests and sympathies were never divorced from his sense of human responsibility. Nothing human was alien to him unless we reckon the sordid, the mean, the vulgar, and the fanatical among the human. He could become angry, but he never felt moral indignation. He could despise causes and even human beings, but his contempt was never cut off from pity. He was a man of great warmth and tenderness, but he was utterly unsentimental. He disliked words like duty and fatherland, but he was singularly free from levity, and he retained to the last a certain Bavarian sturdiness that had become transfigured into an unpretentious strength and greatness of soul. In his long and varied career, he could not help hurting other human beings, but there was no trace of cruelty in him. He had strong likes and dislikes, but they bore no relation to self-interest or vanity. He was sometimes unjust, but he was never petty. In company, he was always pleasant, not heavy or moody, not frivolous or half absent. Though his, his was a rare intelligence, only a crude man could call him an intellectual. His speech was in perfect harmony with his being, direct, weighty, of a manly grace, and free from any trace of the spurious or affected. He did not derive pleasure from winning arguments. When I try to see vividly what distinguishes wisdom from cleverness, I think of Riesler. His political judgment was not misguided by passion or by system or by prejudice. In the few cases where I believed at the time that he was wrong, his judgment was vindicated by what happened afterwards. All the important points made after the Second World War by Chester Wilmot on the basis of more or less secret information were made during that war by Riesler on the basis of information accessible to everyone. So there it is, there's the gentleman, the product of liberal education that you're rightly inquiring about. And note that Strauss isn't saying that Riesler was a philosopher. But rather, both a scholar and a man of action.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's very. It's very interesting that Strauss said modestly, "Well, I don't know how to put this into words," and yet that's a very moving portrait and a very multifaceted portrait. And it's, it's interesting too. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He doesn't refrain from from indicating the warts and all. He says unjust, right. but not petty. I think that's that's very touching. Right. And that's it's not a good portrayal counsel. of a of a European of a pre 1914 European diplomat that you can that a sophisticated person of great cultivation who was not cruel the way the post war world turned into. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reading that. That's a, that's a good that's a good insight into Strauss and what what he valued and what what he felt was was, was were virtues and honorable men. And now turning from Honorable Men to your chapter on German nihilism, which is a a different group, a different kettle of fish, because they were certainly uh, a frightening and sinister group of people, as it turned out, Uh, you say... um, you, paint, you, you talk about the the essay you wrote about the students in the 1920s, the German students and why they turned to Nazism in the end. And you make the interesting fascinating point that Marxism was too stodgy for them, that they that, that Marxism was too focused on economics and bread and butter issues, and they wanted something grander, that they wanted a moral, a moral grandeur in their own twisted way. But and, and you say that if perhaps that that I guess Strauss argued that if the if these young men in the 1920s in Germany had had a figure of moral import such as Churchill, that they might have they might have been turned away. Do you think that's is that what is that in fact what Strauss felt? And do you think that's that's even correct? Because it's not like people young people were flocking to Churchill in Britain in his own country at that time. So that's I was kind of doubting if if Strauss was correct about that.
0: Yeah, well, you're right about the English youth; um, that they were taken with communism, mm. um, but. You've already provided an answer, I think, Hope, to why Strauss thought that German youth would have benefited immensely from the example of Churchill. The English youth were stuck on Marxism. The German youth were more progressive, seeing as the Marxists did not see the future leveling of humanity that Marxism presented and desiring a future with moral meaning over and against the Marxist future, but without any conservative inclinations. There was no throne and altar sympathies to these German youth. They were sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of godless men, as Hmm. Strauss quotes Ernst Jünger observing. The example of Churchill might have been something for the, these German years, something like watching Secretariat in the Belmont. <laughs> it might well have caused them to sit up and say, what the hell is this? Mm. Liberal democracy can produce such greatness, such understanding of what sacrifice means, what blood, sweat, toil, and tears mean. Liberal democracy is supposed to say that that stuff is nonsense that we're all followers of our self-interests, that we go along to get along, get along to go along. Yet liberal democracy produces what we thought history had long ago negated. Maybe we're mistaken. Maybe there's room in liberal democracy for the very life of devotion for which we long. Maybe our historicist reasoning is mistaken. And remember Strauss says of these youth that they don't really take, they didn't take Hitler at all seriously. They said, Hitler, the less said of him, the better.
1: Hmm, the students said that?
0: Yes. According oh, interesting. To
1: huh. Well, this, uh, I'm this, sorry, go ahead.
0: This is the youth who were reading Ernst Jünger, Heidegger, Spengler. And their sentiments were more sophisticated than most, to be sure, but they weren't simply divorced from that of the typical German youth. I recommend to your listeners an autobiography by Alphonse Heck. It's called A Child of Hitler.
1: Mm.
0: And the subtitle is Germany in the Days When God Wore a Swastika. Heck recounts how it wasn't any political or economic development that drew him to Hitler, who was taking over the Rhineland, where Heck lived when he was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Rather, it was the death of Heck's grandfather and the sense of the finality of death, death. That event hit home and brought home to him and um, overcame him. And it caused him to reflect on on death um, a little bit. And um, that was, uh, it's strangely moving. He talks about how his grandfather's dog had laid down on the grave of his grandfather and refused to leave it and died heck was seeking meaning significance in the face of death through sacrificial devotion and that's not so far removed from what the more educated german youth were seeking
1: hmm. and thank you that's very touching and and what 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 lessons might strauss's comments on the german youth have for up to the alt-right of today is there is there is there any comparison at all are they or are they just play actors compared to the seriousness of the german they're not as well read the young alt-right people of today i imagine as the german youth were steeped in those thinkers but is there any is there i don't i don't like to ever compare americans to nazis but there are there any are there any particular lessons that we can draw to try to draw young men away from radicalism or right right wing or left wing radicalism for that matter yeah,
0: that, that's a, a good question. Um, there are indeed some parallels, but I want to preface my remarks by saying that in the first place, Strauss, his talk, German nihilism, is primarily about those thinkers who paved the way for Hitler and were dismissed by the progressive teachers of youth. Mm. And where do we see today on the far right thinkers of the rank of Nietzsche or Heidegger, or even of Jünger or Spengler. Bronze age pervert, (laughs) fourth rate warmed over Nietzschean. Jordan Peterson represents a respectable intellectual who who offers sound advice or self-help to young men who are confused by the amazing excesses of our opinion leaders, Mm. but no one would call him a thinker of the first rank. So with that said, Strauss points out that the teachers of the German youth in question were themselves historicist in their thinking. They were thoughtlessly progressive, and for that reason, incapable of seriously engaging the deep concerns and longings of the students under their care. Strauss says that those teachers should have been much more conservative in their demands of those youth more willing to take their concerns seriously Mm. and to demand of them what they never demanded of themselves. That is a serious defense of the alleged historical necessity of communism and its alleged overcoming of partiality and particularity of its offering a world without struggle, without any need for sacrifice, without any injustice or suffering or tragedy, a world that had been seriously critiqued by Nietzsche as these young men knew as the home of the last man.
1: You may, you, oh, I'm sorry. Go
0: ahead, please.
1: Well, I was going to say you have a wonderful line in the book about the the paternalism that only progressives can show. That maybe if these if those professors had engaged those young men and taken those critiqued the thinkers that they that the students took seriously and and not just dismissed them out of hand, there might have been a different result.
0: Right. What I had in mind by that term, um, peculiar progressive paternalism, is oh yes, I used to think that too. Or. Uh, um you know when you when you get older you'll you'll understand what we progressives understand <laughs> or um you know people used to think that once upon a time but they don't anymore um you, you let me read to you some marks and I'll I'll show you why that's going into the dustbin of history <laughs> okay so that same thoughtless embrace of alleged progress by german teachers in the 30s I'd say that, yeah, that applies to most professors in the social sciences today. Um, Let me add that it applies also to many who consider themselves conservative. They've never really studied Nietzsche seriously. He appears in their writings as a nihilist who introduced nihilism rather than as a thinker who recognized and attempted to confront and overcome that nihilism. By contrast, Strauss took Nietzsche seriously, but he also indicates that he came to disagree with Nietzsche and with his profoundest student, Heidegger, about the sources of the modern world and modern problems, disagree about Plato, about classical political philosophy, and therefore about the true source of our situation. So serious students of Strauss are going to find in his writings on the ancients both an engagement with their deepest concerns and an awareness that's lacking in contemporary education and even in modern political philosophy of the true answer to those concerns.
1: Well, speaking of other other thinkers that influenced Strauss and that he wrote about, and and also in terms of the technology part of the title of your book, you write, you write, as the founder of the, of the technological pro- project of putting theoretical science in service of the political goal of the conquest of nature, Machiavelli, in Strauss's reading, launched modernity and its move towards democratic politics. And I was interested that Machiavelli, I don't think of when I think of democratic politics. Could you talk about that key that key phrase, the conquest of nature, a little bit?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I've touched on it a little bit, but not with, with regard to Machiavelli. Um, and let me say that my friend, Devin Stoffer has compelled me to correct my presentation of Strauss's understanding um, in an exchange that's published in the summer 2022 issue of Interpretation. The Machiavelli obviously comes before the modern scientific project was launched by Bacon and his followers, including Descartes and Hobbes. But Strauss draws our attention to the enormous influence that Machiavelli had on Bacon and thereby on Hobbes who was Bacon's personal secretary and on Descartes. So to reduce this to the simplest terms, Machiavelli showed the way through his call for the conquest of fortune or chance to the Baconian conquest of the given world, the world that happens to have been thrown up by blind forces of necessity and chance. Bacon says that Machiavelli what Machiavelli argues in the case of political life, extra- extracting, that is, its principles and then reconstructing it in order to eliminate the apparently chance character of the right social order or its apparently miraculous character, that, that can and should be replicated in the sub-political world of nature. But that's taken over by Bacon explicitly Acknowledging his debt to Machiavelli. And Hobbes then restores the connection to politics, presenting a teaching whereby the principles of political life could be by induction, resolved and reconstituted, recomposed in order to produce a political order that automatically brought about justice. That is the giving to each what belongs to him. You want good health care. Reward with patents and copyrights those who come up with cures for diseases (laughs) and allow patients to sue their doctors for malpractice. Use self-interest to hit people where it matters, where it rewards and hurts materially. That's the technological approach to political life that I had in mind by that description. Bacon acknowledges in a number of places his debt to Machiavelli and his agreement with his intention Concerning the new direction of science or philosophy. And Hobbes extends the Baconian project to politics directly and elaborately.
1: I was I was surprised in the book that, that you that you said that Strauss considered Hobbes a founder of liberalism, which I don't I always, I always think of Hobbes as a conservative thinker because his world seems very well, I shouldn't say the conservatives are dark thinkers, but they're real, they're more realistic about the world than maybe progressives are. But I was, is that, is that a correct characterization or is that idiosyncratic on Strauss's part to think of Hobbes as a liberal, uh, the founder of liberalism?
0: It's certainly, an, it It was an unusual characterization in first, uh, Strauss first made it. And it's, it's a major issue in the dispute between Strauss and his students and what, is called the Cambridge School, founded largely by Quentin Skinner and his students.
1: Hmm.
0: And maybe the best place to begin considering Strauss's argument is in Natural Right in History. Chapter five is a section on Hobbes, followed by a section on Locke. Hobbes's argument for absolute monarchy doesn't appear to us, to late moderns, as particularly liberal. But if we consider the central doctrines doctrines of classical liberalism, I I think we can begin to see what Strauss has in mind. No one before Hobbes had argued for the existence of pre-political natural rights possessed by all human beings in a state of nature. Natural rights, that is, justified selfish claims of individuals. That's the core of liberalism. No one before Hobbes had argued that civil society is founded on a contract of perfectly free individuals in which all individuals lay down their right to all things in order to secure their lives, and that the end of civil society is the securing of as much as possible of one's original right to all things, that is of rights in the plural, to attain security of life above all and the liberty to pursue happiness as one sees fit and that the sovereign's job is to secure rights. No one before Hobbes had denied that there are by nature innate immoral principles of natural law, of a duty to devote oneself to the common good, but that there are instead, first and foremost, by nature, inalienable rights of the individual, not duties, but rights. No one had argued before Hobbes that human beings are equal In their natural rights. Equal in worth, and that there's no natural worth or desert, no natural superior and inferior, no natural wages, no natural prices, but that instead, all of these are constructed by society, by anonymous others in accord with the subjective desires of an aggregating market. Hobbes similarly is the first to spell out the inalienable right not to incriminate oneself. Even if you know you're guilty, you don't have a duty to say so. Hmm. So these are some of the things that Strauss has in mind by speaking of Hobbes as the founder of liberalism. Now, what emerges from Hobbes' doctrine is the, the powerful state, sure, unlimited in its means but limited quite severely in its ends, such that an enormous private sphere with a web of relations and associations, which we call now society, that comes to exist and take up, in fact, most of our lives. And the state is accordingly reduced to the securing of individual rights so that that society remains peaceful. John Locke took over all of these doctrines, modifying them in some important respects, but not essentially. Strauss's argument is that Locke is a quiet follower of Hobbes, who, more prudent than Hobbes, and therefore uh, more effective than Hobbes, was able to convince a number of his followers that there's nothing new in this. Uh, I'm just following the teachings of, of, uh, of Anglicanism. Both thinkers were, uh, they would have us channel our self-interested passions, have ambition counteracting ambition, to use Madison's phrase, for the sake of peaceful and comfortable living together without disruptions from the vainglorious, especially from the armed prophets. Now, let me mention incidentally that some historical support for Strauss's argument on this question has recently been unearthed by Felix Waldman of Cambridge University in a, um, a very interesting discovery. Waldman uncovered a memoir of Locke by someone named Pierre Mazot in which Mazot quotes Locke's associate. This was just last year. He he finds him quoting Locke's associate, James Tyrrell, as saying, while at Oxford, Locke, quote, almost always had the Leviathan by Hobbes on his table. And he recommended the reading of it to his friends. However, he, that is Locke, later affected to deny in the future that he had ever read it.
1: Well, maybe he, would, maybe he didn't. Maybe it was just sitting on his table.
0: Oh, right. No, he, he told other people to purchase it. Oh,
1: I see. Uh, I see.
0: And this was already, he, uh, Locke was already called out on this during his lifetime by the Bishop of Worcester, and who who showed in an, an essay how there were some arguments that sounded very strikingly close to those of Hobbes' Leviathan. Mm-hmm in the first and second treatises. And you know, Locke, in effect, said, oh, isn't that interesting? I've never read it.
1: <laughs> that doesn't reflect terribly well on Locke, unfortunately. Well- um... Um,
0: And there's an article about Waldwin's discovery and its bearings on Strauss's claim that Locke was a quiet follower of Hobbes. And that appeared in the most recent issue of the Review of Politics, if, if any of your listeners are, are interested.
1: That would I'm sure I'm sure many of them are because that's a it's a striking insight into Hobbes's I'm sorry into into Locke's character and his reading list. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, of of the of the thinkers that influenced Strauss, that you I was I was interested that given that he influenced so many American thinkers and American uh, students that later became quite quite important in the po- the political the, the national security state for want of a better word that. He was influenced by Heidegger, and I don't think of Heidegger as having a huge influence in conservative thinking. Was it, in in an American, I guess, in the the would be the, the sort of pretentious intellectualism of some conservative thinkers who are not particularly well read. Is is was that something unique to to Strauss, or or was he a conduit to Heidegger's thinking for American conservatives who just didn't didn't acknowledge Heidegger particularly, or? Or was he just, he called out Heidegger, he didn't particularly admire him, particularly, did he? Or?
0: That's right. No, it's the latter. Um, I mean, Strauss is, uh, as I present him, um, engaged in a kind of quiet dialogue against Heidegger, with Heidegger, but against um, Heidegger's fundamental misunderstanding of the ancients. And um, so, why, but why would, Strauss bothered with Heidegger. Heidegger mm-hmm. has been extraordinarily influential in America. Mm-hmm. We've all heard of the first manifestation of that influence, existentialism. We may have heard of Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. Hans Jonas, Karl Liveth. These are all very influential students of Heidegger. In philosophy, the work of John Gray bears mentioning as an early exponent of Heidegger's thought in America In theology. Of course, the work of Etienne gelson uh, and more recently of Karl Rahner, a close friend of Heidegger. In political theory, one major school of thought, the Berkeley School, associated with Sheldon Wolin, is influenced by Heidegger. And some of your listeners may be familiar with the work of Richard Rorty, mm. whose thought was decisively influenced by Heidegger, though Rorty never completed his planned book on Heidegger. Other listeners may be familiar with the term postmodern. The postmodern, which came to our shores largely through French thought, through that of Léotard, Derrida, Lacan, is, of course, Heideggerian, with some other influences, including Marx and Freud. And certainly the early Michel Foucault, and through his work, Queer Theory, is Heideggerian. Mm as is the postmodern feminism of Irigaray and third wave feminism's call to intentionally construct and become free to express one's authentic gender identity. There's also the Marxist Frankfurt School guru of the new left in America, Herbert Marcuse, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on Hegel under Heidegger. Marcuse oh. represents the first wave, you could say, of Heideggerian Marxism here. And maybe you haven't heard of Marcuse, um, but it's hard to imagine the 60s without him. Oh, yes. Angela Davis, one of the early Black Panthers, a Communist Party member, later a member of the faculty in the University of California system, studied under Marcuse. You've heard of Edward Said. Mm-hmm. He and his doctrine of Orientalism is standard reading in Middle East studies departments. Trace his education. You'll find it goes back first to his cousin, Charles Malik, an early intellectual influence on him, who had studied with Heidegger at Freiburg. And then to Franz Fanon, who studied with Heideggerian Merleau-Ponty and was promoted by existentialist uh, Francis Janson. Strauss saw a very early on, by 1925 that is, that Heidegger would come to have such great influence.
1: Well, I'm I'm thoroughly refuted on saying well he didn't know. who was Heidegger so thank you very <laughs> much <laughs> comprehensive and very tactful correction of that because that, that well, was there, very there's
0: helpful. reason that you wouldn't know it's uh, because of course I mean Heidegger in 1933 became director of the uh, University of Freiburg and was um, became a member of the Nazi Party. It's complicated, Heidegger. Um, Claims in an article in 1949 that in fact um, the Nazis did not like him one bit, got rid of him as fast as they could. That he in the 30s was published was was giving classes on Nietzsche in which he was quietly attacking the Nazis, um, but he remained a card carrying paying dues member of the party until 1945, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so, people like Lacan—they they wanted to hide that. Um, they didn't want people to know about their past. Um, but there, it's now become much more respectable to talk about Heidegger, uh, to and to acknowledge, to work on him, and and to acknowledge his influence.
1: Well, in the in the number of names that you mentioned among the people that were influenced by Heidegger, there was a great range of fields of study that saeed Mm -hmm. was a literary critic and angela davis was a i guess she started philosophy but she was a political activist mostly and -hmm. and i wonder if we could discuss strauss's strauss's how people characterize him because heidegger was a, a, a philosopher pretty much pure and simple whereas would you consider um strauss a intellectual historian or a political theorist or a philosopher or was he just a, was he ha, 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 what 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 department was he in at the University of Chicago for example? Well,
0: Strauss is actually much more you could say of a, a strict philosopher than than Heidegger. After all, Heidegger um, in the Rectoral Address and then subsequently in the introduction to metaphysics um, indicated the activist nature of authentic being, as he called it. Um, That is that he expected that type of being, authentic being, to be something that could be taken up by virtually everyone and, um, and was devoted in a certain way to this, what he saw as this great political battle between the West and this somewhat philosophic nation, as he conceived of Germany, um, and and that's what caused him to speak in the introduction of metaphysics, but also in uh, which in the first first. Uh, issue in the 30s, but then when it was reissued in 1953, with all mistakes removed, he still spoke of the inner truth and greatness of national socialism. Um, That is to say, as he put it, it's opposition to technology, that he thought that that the movement was opposed to that which was driving the West and rightly opposed to it. Um, So... I mean I can return to the question of, of what Strauss is, but perhaps you want to talk about some of the other thinkers that we're
1: yeah, I was gonna say we could we could move to Strauss's view of Plato and and how 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 it might relate to his idea of an aristocracy within democracy, that seems a, a little a little bit like Plato, in my elementary understanding of, of Plato. Were there are there figures today that Strauss would consider these aristocrats within democracy? For example, I mean, would he regard some of it as meretricious that, for example, Obama liked to hobnob with intellectuals, and Biden makes a great play of meeting with historians. And John Kennedy certainly liked to hobnob with, in fact, he hired intellectuals to be in his his advisors. how would How would Strauss's views work in practice of an aristocracy that certainly Churchill was a great a great reader of history. He actually was a serious student of history rather than just play, playing at it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let me go back first to your question concerning uh, what Strauss himself was. Um, Mm -hmm. Was he a political theorist? Was he a philosopher? Was he somebody who was interested in, um, was he just an historian of ideas? Um, He actually gave a talk on political theory uh, in which he argued that the term is one that puts action or practice ahead of knowledge. Mm and is ultimately in the service of conquest of nature. He himself is not a political theorist, nor is he a mere intellectual historian. He's a philosopher. Mm -hmm. Um, As for his critical comments on some who teach and write in the discipline of philosophy, Mm -hmm. those comments are not of the discipline per se. They're of those who, as it were, wear the badge of philosopher just like Michael Beschloss comes out and wears the badge of the story.
1: <laughs> That's right, or John Meacham. <laughs>
0: Strauss points out that one, one should no more expect such a one to be the real thing as one should expect to find a great artist in an art department or a great poet among teachers of poetry. It could happen, but nothing guarantees it. He reserved the name philosopher for thinkers of the first rank, like Edmund Husserl. He considered philosophy, as did thinkers from Plato to Nietzsche, to be a way of life, not a mere academic discipline. But since he recovered the need for political philosophy as a propedeutic to philosophy, he explicated the classical practice of political philosophy over and against its modern form, political theory. And he pointed the way that political life not his life, but the alternative to it, political life, might find again its bearings in the path to sound political reasoning and judgment. So it isn't surprising that he taught in a political science department at, at Chicago. Um, now there were, of course, difficulties in the practice of political science Um, We've talked a little bit about those with the fact-value distinction, um, and Strauss did see a problem with the practice of political science, um, a problem that could be corrected by um, examples like Churchill. Uh, That is, he saw the contemporary practice of political science, positivist political science, as quite unscientific in some of its claims and as degrading in its assumptions. For example, it dismissed common sense reasoning, you know, as kind of superstition, even as it relied on it. So political scientists only poll human beings, for example, if they're doing a voter study. They're known to be human beings uh, on the basis of common sense and nothing but common sense that they're not known through um, social science to be human beings. Value-free political science made a pretense of scientific knowledge, often rendering common sense unnecessarily into the jargon of science. I'll give you an example. There's a book that I had to read as an undergraduate by Huntington and Brzezinski. It was called Political Power USA, USSR. And uh, there's a statement uh, very early on this, uh, I think I, I can quote the full thing. The coming into being of a new generation of leaders is so highly probable as to become virtually certain with the passage of time.
1: <laughs> that- Sounds like Kamala Harris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what does it mean? It means that political leaders eventually die. Yeah. But does one really need probability studies to know that? <laughs> Above all, in its search for causes, for necessities, value-free social science makes the degrading assumption that everyone is self-interested or altogether subject to blind forces. It's an assumption that renders the thoughts and speeches of political actors irrelevant. For example, there's a sub-discipline in political science called now, called judicial politics. That's replacing an older sub-discipline called Public Law. Judicial politics entails no serious reflection on the arguments, the jurisprudence of Supreme Court justices. Behind it, instead, one perceives this deep cynicism that tells young men and women it's all a power and interest game with no human choice. No one's ever motivated by justice or adherence to principle. Now, that, that distorts the phenomena of political life. take another example from comparative politics. I recently read an article on Tunisian politics in a top tier peer reviewed journal. And it compares and contrasts the autocratic rule of Bourguiba and Ben Ali in Tunisia from 1956 to 2007. It repeatedly claims that the Bourguiba government must be understood as having practiced co-optation of various interest groups with the goal of maintaining power. That's the <laughs> thesis. That, that claim is contradicted later in the article when the author admits that the Bourguiba government had a vision of the common good for Tunisia informed by a long range modernization plan, that it put a premium on the actual competence of its ministers in delivering on that vision. And it had far less personal corruption As the author puts it, than did the Ben Ali regime. Hmm. Those are all terms that the author is not supposed to use as a value-free political scientist, (laughs) but which are of course crucial to understanding, to describing what was actually taking place in Tunisia. And these common-sense observations contradict the earlier social science account in that article, rendering the author's findings incoherent. So these are the kinds of problems that Strauss has in mind with uh, allegedly value-free science. Um, now, concerning your, your question about Strauss and in, in aristocracy, talking about aristocracy, um, as I mentioned in the book, he is careful to speak of a sub-political aristocracy that is taking advantage, you could say, of the distinction brought into being in liberal regimes between the state and society. That this is not an aristocracy that that would rule. It would rather is um, an aristocracy within democracy. And um, is it unusual to speak in this way? By all means. Mm -hmm. Um, But we might consider that Both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson spoke of the need for a natural aristocracy within American democracy. A natural aristocracy, not a conventional or hereditary one. And they meant by that term, human beings with sufficient talents, moral education, and adherence to honor, to be reflective, to judge well, to govern. They didn't mean J school graduates yelling on social media. Hmm. They didn't mean lockstep well, corporate executives who live in gated communities and feel guilty about their wealth and are afraid of being disinvited from the correct galas with Hollywood actors. Um, they they meant, as I say, those with the moral education and talents to be able to govern
1: well. And certainly, George Washington in the in the Founders' Day would probably strike them as a natural aristocrat, just by his bearing and his 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 dignity and his sense of duty.
0: It's a good question. Um,
1: or, or was he not well read well, enough to cause him?
0: <laughs> Washington certainly had. Um, we we know this from his own writing that that he made a point of attempting to model himself after in the the mold of certain virtues. Um, Whether he had, I mean, he certainly was a very talented military leader. Um, Whether he was considered by Adams and Jefferson to be simply outstanding as a a political leader, that's another question, but uh, it's it's one that would get us off topic. But you could say that, he Washington would would be an example of a gentleman.
1: Oh, okay. I was going to say that it's interesting because Churchill was regarded was was an actual aristocrat, but I think that many people would not regard him as a gentleman, even though Strauss would have said he was a great man. Is there a dis, there's a slight distinction between a gentleman and a great man that they one is not necessarily the other.
0: No, they're not. Uh, although they often go together, mm. um, but. Um, I mean, Strauss did draw attention to the, the question of, of what a gentleman is. He's, he wasn't speaking of landed gentlemen of the English variety, um, of, of of a Churchill, for example. Most of Strauss's statement on, on, on the gentleman, as I mentioned, concern those members of the classical city who called themselves Kaloi Kagathoi, the noble and the good, which is today often translated as gentlemen. But far from uh, rhapsodizing, um, Strauss points out the boastful character of their claims. But he also brings out how they could introduce and sustain within political life an attachment to what's noble in the sense of high, admirable, movingly self-sacrificial and of what's good. Not in the sense of useful for something else, but good for its own sake, conducive to a truly fulfilling or flourishing life. And Strauss recognized, and sometimes he drew attention to the tension between those two things, noble and good, yeah. at the heart of the classical gentleman's self understanding and way of life. But he also saw how it made room for, it paid deference to the genuinely best way of life and refined the mores and tastes and activities of everyone, even the, of the lowliest. So um, you could think of upstairs, downstairs, for mm. example, or the shooting party, or, or the Philadelphia story.
1: Mm. Well, I was gonna, just at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Timothy W. Burns, the author of the book, Leo Strauss on Democracy, Technology, and Liberal Education. And getting back to Strauss's views of gentlemanliness, what do you mean by the use of the word probity in relation to Strauss's thinking? That, that's mentioned quite a bit in your book.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, most important place that Strauss mentions probity is in the autobiographical preface to the English translation of Spinoza's Critique of Religion. Uh, that came out in 1965. It's a passage that I I think is sometimes misunderstood by Strauss's readers, and I, I used to misunderstand it myself, I think. Um, it's a passage that, that it's made in an effort to summarize the last stage of the modern's atheistic project, that is the Nietzschean stage, as it appeared to Strauss in his youth. And that, that whole autobiographical preface is quite interesting in that um, Strauss talks about, um, he opens it by talking about a youth who was in the grip of the theological political predicament. And then he goes on to describe what that means. And then only in the very final paragraph does he say, does he use the first person, I, I therefore. Um, So it's kind of a description of a a pre Straussian Strauss. Um, And what, so what does, what does this mean, this, this summary of Nietzsche, which has uh, Nietzsche's thought that has the statement about probity. Nietzsche speaks of intellectual probity, that is intellectual honesty. You could also translate it that way. And he presents it as a virtue, that our historical situation has bequeathed to us. In other words, it's not something that existed before. So let me, it's it's somewhat complicated. Let me just briefly try to explain that because it's important. Hmm. According to Nietzsche, we come at the end of 2000 years of the Christian demand for an examination of conscience an examination that Nietzsche considers to be nothing more and nothing less than a form of self-torture. The will to power turned inward among the weak, who are too weak to give the will to power its normal expression in violence against others, so they torture themselves. The Christian conscience is a form of self-torture. It's uh, one of the things that it demands in its torture is honesty with oneself. According to Nietzsche, this has finally resulted in the honest admission by Christians that we've made God up, Hmm. that he's a product of our creative will. It's not a being who has any other existence. Nietzsche considered this, of course, potentially a, a catastrophe for man who's always lived within a particular horizon of values, who's always believed that horizon to be not man-made. And now man finds out, or rather admits to himself that he's been all along the creator of the gods, of the idols, and thereby of his moral horizons. So this is what uh, the, the statement of Zarathustra, God is dead, means very hard to believe in a God that you know you've made up. Hmm. But this probity also brings about, according to Nietzsche, a new possibility for man, an active self-conscious creativity, one that depends on this intellectual probity or honesty. This Nietzschean teaching about the overman, this Or some poison political fruit, of course, in the thought of men like Ernst Jünger and his friend Martin Heidegger. What did it mean in practice? It meant, as as Jünger had put it, the German youth were the grandsons and great-grandsons of godless men. Why could they, why were they godless? Why could they not believe? They saw around them a world transformed by man, by technology by modernity's conquest of nature, and thereby its disenchantment of the world. Mm. And this is precisely what was intended by the founders of the modern technological project that we were talking about earlier, Bacon, Hobbes, Descartes. The given world and its wonders and its sufferings would be replaced by the man-made world. And what was left of the given world would no longer be understood as it had been, certainly not as divinely created. So to take an example from uh, both Bacon and Hobbes, a rainbow is said in the Bible to have appeared to Noah as a miracle. It was rare or unprecedented. But Hobbes says, once people have seen it a lot, it's no longer a miracle, um, but also figure out how to reproduce it in the lab by figuring out the principles to bring it about. reflection, refraction, and everyone, everyone will see. It's not miraculous. It's not a divine sign. It's not a sign of anything. The world of ghosts and goblins and mysterious causes disappears with the advance of science, such that when one sees such things as nuns wearing habits or a knight-errant in armor on a horse <laughs> suddenly appearing in, in, in the village square. Uh, one has to think they belong to a past age, an age of beliefs. OK, so that's the historical sense that goes together with probity. The historical sense is it's something marvelously portrayed. It's also critiqued by Mark Twain in A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Um, <laughs> Anachronism. Hmm. The historical sense, it's already visible in the initial rebellion against modernity, as Strauss notes, that went by the name of romanticism. Romantics longed in a futile way, as Strauss says in his review of Collingwood. They longed for a lost past. It's a futile longing for the past. That is, they viewed the lives of human beings who could be moved by devotional chivalry as better than the life available to them in disenchanted modernity. But they could not accept, they could not themselves accept as true what those who had lived in the past accepted as true. Hmm. Okay, so that's historicist probity. And Strauss faults it for being insufficient. It's not enough. It's failing to provide that is a warranted godlessness. It's not sufficient to say, I just can't believe.
1: Hmm.
0: And I'll add that Strauss also points to Socrates' description in the Republic of the hatred of the lie and the soul as evidence that intellectual property is not the creation of Christianity at all. It's rather something that's always been necessary, if again, not sufficient for the philosophic life. Hmm.
1: Well, speaking of, oh, yes, it does <laughs> very much. So I was going to ask very much. So I wanted to ask, you use the word disenchantment and you use a striking phrase in the book, the shift from bliss to happiness. Could you discuss that a little bit?
0: Um, sure. Um, the, the shift is um, something Strauss alludes to in his essay, Liberal Education and Responsibility and I've been helped to see what he means by an article by Christopher Bruhl titled Happiness in the Perspective of Philosophy, though I don't claim to have grasped all that he's getting at. Um, There are two words for happiness in in classical Greek, eudaimonia and makariotes. And one sees them implicitly compared in, for example, Xenophon's and or in Aristotle's Ethics. You could translate eudaimonia as happiness, and Macariotes as blessedness. Hmm. two quite different things. and in fact, I remember hearing a priest complain that the Beatitudes were being translated as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. he said it should be blessed. Hmm. What's the difference? Well, um, happiness roughly uh, concerns the happiness or well-being that we can attain on our own blessedness speaks a concern for a happiness that we know we cannot attain on our own or for which we would be in need of divine assistance, blessing. Mm. One might say that uh, the latter, that is, um, blessedness has to do with chance, with things out of our control. But that isn't the whole story. The distinction has to do ultimately with the fact that we are aware of our mortality, and we long for an immortal happiness. And this is something that would be available to us, if at all, only from the divine. Our erotic longing for immortality, as Diotima says in Plato's Symposium, gives rise to the whole devotional life of man, and it characterizes all serious life. Now, one way to see the distinctive character of modernity is to notice it finds this longing for immortality to be artificial. And it holds out the promise that we human beings can be perfectly happy on our own with comfortable, healthy, secure lives that also have sufficient distractions and entertainments. And we can achieve this by our scientific conquest of nature and the gifts that it makes available to us, as one sees with uh, perfect clarity in the theological writings of John Stuart Mill. It, Mill says, I, I can see the day coming when um, to think that our, that we are not in any way, that, uh, people long for immortality, that that will seem as strange as does now the thought that we can be happy being completely mortal.
1: Hmm. Well, in terms of happiness, you also discussed that Strauss talked about rootedness, which is kind of kind of sad because he spent much of his life on the run from the Nazis and he had to entirely master another country and several countries, England first, and well, I guess England then here. And and could you discuss his concept of rootedness? And what is what exactly does do conservatives now? see in schrauss i mean i see references to him what is it that appeals to a wide variety of conservatives about him is it is it is it his concept of of rootedness within culture because he, he stresses that that, that uh, sticking to one's traditions one's values one's upbringing one's basic background is very important and that seems a, a big part of conservatism but at the same time some people see him as a liberal it's kind of confusing
0: okay well um Yeah, and he does use the term citizen of the world at one Mm. point, uh, which I was actually surprised to see, but then I noticed- I was too. What what he's claiming is that the cosmopolitanism um, that he has in mind by that term is something he's at pains to distinguish from the cosmopolitanism of contemporary liberalism. Um, That is, he's talking about a very hard-won and rare cosmopolitanism. Um, it requires an ascent from the limitations of once here and now. It speaks to the possibility of being guided eventually by standards of conduct that are not partial or particular or parochial, but instead universally admirable. It really ha- has little to do with Strauss's own experience of exile. Um, it's found rather in Plato. And the rarity of it also speaks to what you were saying. Strauss finds that the guiding principles from which most human lives, if they're to be ennobled and live toward action rather than toward thinking, that those principles are available in the traditions, the rooted religious and national traditions into which we've been born. That is in law, as divine law, uh, which lend moral meaning, significance to human life. Okay, with with that said, I, I think it's important to distinguish Strauss's understanding of tradition and its role in a life worth living from that of Heidegger. Heidegger presents tradition in his book, Being and Time, in that book's account of time. And he argues that the tradition into which one has been thrown by fate, by history, must be incorporated into one's authentic, angst-informed, individual, future-directed project in being with others. This is a posture toward tradition that's essentially revolutionary. It's anti-conservative. It's explicitly seeking a heroic new beginning for each member of the Volk. <laughs> and authentic, the authentic self that Heidegger talks about has no reverent love for heritage as love of one's own, of one's deep ancestral roots, of one's family. The authentic self of Heidegger has no reverence for tradition's accumulated wisdom of experience. It has no sense of prudence. And so of moderation, as caution about uprooting or breaking with tradition in its embodiment of the wisdom of our ancestors. It's instead perfectly compatible with it, It even stems from Heidegger's contempt for the they, in German, das Mann, talks about throughout being in time, and which represents inauthentic living. Contempt for the whole everyday social world of the 20th century. So Heidegger can say in being in time, Thus understood as reasonableness, I'm quoting now, or prudence. Thus understood, as, as uh, this word, constitutes the inauthentic existence of the they. <laughs> the inauthentic is the wrong way, this reasonableness, this prudence. And Strauss's understanding of tradition is much closer to that of Edmund Burke mm. or Aristotle.
1: Well, thank you. I was going to ask you about some of his of Strauss's views on on Burke, but then I I'd like to shift now from Burke to a rough, con- well, not quite a contemporary, but an somewhat near in time that Tocqueville's view of greatness in democracy, because that seems very similar to um, Strauss's view of he, he believed in greatness in democracy. Could you discuss his his views on Tocqueville's view of greatness in democracy?
0: Um, yeah, sure. that uh, this is something that my uh, some of my friends who are like me, fans of tocqueville and and of his penetrating analysis of modern democracy, they gently argued with me about it. My point is a simple one. It's that Strauss argues that greatness is possible today in liberal democracy. Mm. Tocqueville, by contrast, points almost exclusively to the past for examples of greatness. Mm and he prescribes against the problems of liberal democracy, tyranny of the majority, individualism. He prescribes contemporary democratic solutions, such as the doctrine of self-interest rightly understood, such as voluntary associations of even the most prosaic kind and the democratic family. Not only that, but Tocqueville encouraged his aristocratically inclined readers to bow to what he called a force superior to man that he saw carrying us along toward modern democracy. He encouraged them to abandon his aristocratic leaders to abandon their attachment to aristocracy and the possibilities explicitly says of human greatness. <laughs> hmm aristocracy made possible in which as he presents it democracy must foreclose and he says that at, uh, if your listeners are interested at the end of volume one part two chapter six of democracy in America
1: well I was going to say that um the in the in one one thing I found interesting in the book was that you that I believe you or Strauss Strauss no Strauss I'm sorry believe very strongly that German thought was underestimated in terms of its contribution to to civilization, that 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 French thought that the Enlightenment and the French thinkers were deleterious influences, whereas the Germans were, and you mentioned in when you're reading of the of the of his tribute to his friend, he mentioned Goethe, for example. Could you discuss a little bit about the Enlightenment and also um t- that he, the, Strauss referred to the moderate Enlightenment and the radical Enlightenment. Could you discuss those two concepts?
0: Um, sure. Well, those are two quite different questions. Mm. Um, for Perfect. the first, there was a, a reaction in Germany, or Strauss says the ger- German um, thought stood up against the Enlightenment. Mm. Um, that, you have to remember, after uh, the French Revolution, and the spread of Enlightenment doctrines throughout Europe by Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars that um, liberalism, lib, lib, especially uh, what became liberal democracy, um, spread throughout throughout what had been monarchies and, or even in some cases after the Peace of eighteen fifteen, remained monarchies until nineteen fourteen or nineteen eighteen and that German thinkers saw the self-interested basis of the doctrine of individual rights as degrading, as based on an understanding of a compelling self-interest, and as not taking account of, um, of the moral life of man. I think that that's um, most visible in the thought of, of Kant, um, both in his uh, groundwork for the metaphysics of morals and in the metaphysics of morals, um, that as he puts it, uh, or as he presents it, the moral life is not eudaimonistic. It's not, you don't do the moral thing for the sake of your happiness. To the contrary, that's what animals do. Humans are distinguished by precisely by their ability to sacrifice their, ha- their their happiness, their own good, for in order to do the morally right thing. Um, so that's what uh, I think broadly Strauss had in mind by that. Um, now, the second part of your question, I forget what it was.
1: Oh, about the the, the radical Enlightenment versus the moderate Enlightenment. Yeah,
0: sure. Um, so I think. You could understand the radical enlightenment. Um, you could see it, let's say, uh, vividly in the French Revolution. In 1792 to 93, Notre Dame Cathedral was stripped of its statues of saints and the cult of reason was installed, goddess mm-hmm. reason. Uh, or take the Soviet Union. I'd seen posters from the former Soviet Union, that had a diagonal line running through them. On the top side of the line in Russian is the word science with pictures drawn of labs, of productive factories, of dams and of happy people. And on the other side, dark bottom side, the word superstition with pictures of churches, priests, witches, goblins. The Moderate Enlightenment, so that that would be the radical, a visual presentation of the Radical Enlightenment. The the Moderate Enlightenment was, by contrast, Enlightenment as synthesized with Orthodox religion and its moral demands. It accepted the Enlightenment's scientific findings, but argued they don't fundamentally affect Orthodox faith. And Strauss described this Moderate Enlightenment as the best first harvest of the radical enlightenment or the modern enlighteners as the unawares advanced troops of the radical enlightenment hmm. which eventually showed itself in full opposition to religious belief.
1: Yeah, You had a wonderful line in the book about the difference between the days of I know that my redeemer liveth to "I believe, I believe that my redeemer liveth which was they're touching, just a simple change of, of, of words there. Speaking of religious belief, we're getting towards the end, but I just wanted to ask about this rather moving eulogy that uh, Strauss wrote to us. He seems to be a very good eulogist in general, but he wrote about this memorial remarks for Jason Aronson, who was one of his students. And could you discuss the background of that eulogy and what it reveals about Strauss as a teacher and a professor?
0: Sure. Uh, Jason Ariston was was a doctoral student of Strauss at the University of Chicago. He had a fatal illness. Strauss was asked to speak after his death at a memorial in his honor. And I contrast that memorial with one that, that Heidegger gave. But Strauss's remarks bring out, it seems to me, the attention that Strauss paid to both the mind and the heart of his students. And it's meant to encourage the kind of uh, investigation of one's religious tradition that speaks to the heart and offers deep articulations of the objects of its longings and of the world to which these longings correspond, the world of the call of God to a life of righteousness. But as Strauss also makes clear, Aronson had begun to understand the kind of sacrifices of even our most cherished hopes that the philosophic life demands. Um, so I'll say only that much, and invite those who are interested to to take a look at the final chapter of the book. Mm.
1: Who, who would who, who would be a, a a counterpart to Strauss's influence uh, from the left? Is, is there anybody that <clears throat> that um, has the same? Uh, I, I was. Do you think is it fair to say that, that Strauss has almost a cult like status among some conservative intellectuals, or is that is that even fair? I, I read Yoram Hazani's book about conservatism, and he doesn't even believe that Strauss was a conservative. He classifies him as a as a, as a liberal. Mm-hmm. I just wonder is there is there a comp- are there comparable figures both in his day and now to Strauss in terms of an intellectual that wields that kind of I- intellectual influence on people completely outside of academia.
0: Uh, completely outside of academia. Mm, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's a fairly easy answer. Is is there anybody with that kind of continuing influence mm. on the left? Uh, Karl Marx.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> when I was speaking with some ac- academics in China a few years ago, they expressed astonishment at the great abiding influence of Marx in America. Hmm.
1: Um, would you Would you put Strauss in that category of that of that level of? Of influence and thinking.
0: Um, well, you were asking if there is anyone who has uh, that kind of abiding influence, mm. um, and I would say, yeah. I mean, but there are, of course. Um, um, I mean, Strauss is not at all, you could say, um, attempting to change the world. Mm. Uh, Marx is. Marx actually um, says. Uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. Um, So critical thinking has to replace philosophy. And Strauss is uh, pointing to the ancient alternative over and against that that modern attempt.
1: Hmm. Well, we're getting towards the end of the interview and I wanted to ask you, what would be the, the main takeaway of the book for, for general readers? I would say it is not necessarily for general readers who are hoping for an easy read. It is, it is a very challenging book and it is a very deep, deep, deeply argued book, but it is worth reading because he was such a significant person. What would you what would you hope for a general reader to take from Strauss's life and his and 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 your book in particular?
0: Okay, I guess uh... <laughs> Very briefly, five points. Uh, First, the root of technological thinking is not to be found in Plato or the ancients. It's in the moderns. Second, the philosophic life is necessarily profoundly different from political life, as I was just saying, and Mm -hmm. from its longings and attachments, and that this was lost through the modern technological development and whose grip we remain. Third that liberation of the mind from one's time and place remains possible as does fourth serious and even great political life within modernity. If we're prepared to defy the degrading cynicism with which modernity and especially contemporary social science has invited us to approach political life. And then fifth and finally, we have to read old books we have to read them to learn from them and not mm. merely about them. They're of great assistance in attaining the goals of liberal education that is genuine and enviable happiness and experience and things beautiful.
1: That is very that is very touching and movingly expressed. <laughs> well, well, Timothy, I've taken up a lot of your time. And I'd like to ask you now, this is the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
0: Okay, well, I have uh, a year off. I'm here at Princeton as a fellow in the James Madison program.
1: Are you? I didn't realize that, that you're at Princeton right now. I didn't realize mm -hmm. that.
0: And I'm finishing a book on Xenophon's Syrapidea, The Education of Cyrus. It's a book that is one of the few works of classical political philosophy that's approvingly cited by modern political philosophers from Machiavelli to Bacon to Montesquieu, Rousseau, uh, thinkers like Philip Sidney, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. And in this book, Xenophon recounts not only the education of Cyrus, that's that's the first book of of eight, um, but the life of imperial conquest that followed Cyrus's incomplete education in Medea and Persia. Uh, you know who Cyrus is?
1: He was a famous king of Persia, is that correct?
0: And, and the founder of the, of, uh, of the Persian Empire. Mm. Um, that is, he took over what had been the Assyrian Empire. He's mentioned in Isaiah forty forty five In Hebrew, it's Koresh. Um, and his name actually came to mean Lord in Greek. So when uh, Catholics sing Kiri Eleison, That's Cyrus, have mercy. But Xenophon, the author of the Cyropedia, Xenophon fell out of favor for a few centuries uh, recently, owing to the loss of understanding of esoteric writing. And one of Strauss's great accomplishments was to restore respect for Xenophon. And he saw that Xenophon, dressed himself up as a mere military man, a Colonel Blimp,
1: <laughs>
0: while in fact being a profound philosophic student of Socrates. Xenophon has Socratic dialogues. He also has this other pole to his thought, Cyrus. So um, my efforts are devoted to explicating this work of Xenophon on the founder of the Persian Empire, and especially on the role of Eros in, in political life.
1: And could you tell me a little bit I'm just curious I've read about the James Madison program at Princeton is what is your daily life there as a fellow do you just say good morning and then you head off to the library or do you have do you teach or or and do you have colloquies with people, colleagues who are working on similar similar subjects to you or are there are or, or, or they? Or are they all working on widely disparate topics, and you're learning from each other? What is it? What is a life of a medicine? Does, are you a visiting scholar? Is that correct? Or
0: yes, um, um, with the Bar- the Barry Foundation is mm. uh, paying my way this year. Mm. So um, almost all the things you just said are, are part of the medicine program. Um,
1: and you're from and you're. This is a. Is, you're having a culture shock because you're from Baylor, right? So that's a pretty different different setting.
0: Well, I, I'm not sure what you mean by that, Hope, but oh. um, I was raised in the Northeast, so um, this is in a way coming home. It's fall here. It's almost never fall in, in Waco. <laughs> and so, you know, now is actually the peak. Um, and I know all of the plants here, so, <laughs> um, and I don't, I still don't in, in, in Waco. So it's a, a bit of a homecoming. Um, but uh, every day, yes, um, you know, we're we're all we're, we're not in the same living quarters, but um, there are offices um, that um, all the fellows and the the uh, postdoctoral fellows also are, uh, have um, every Tuesday from 9.30 to about noon, there's a breakfast, a very nice breakfast. I don't eat breakfast, but a very nice breakfast. (laughs) And, um,
1: you ought to, it's good for you, you know,
0: (laughs) uh, you could discuss that with with (laughs) my my health coach wife. So, um, that's that's very nice. Robbie George is there. Uh, he's of course the founder of the of the medicine program, and um, he does a terrific job of uh, directing the discussion. For that would be Ro- that
1: would be Robert P. George, the professor of jurisprudence there, and the director of the program. That's
0: right. Yeah, everyone calls him Robbie, <laughs> um, and. Uh, Brad Wilson is there. He's the Mm. executive director. um, Yeah, I interviewed him about his
1: Hamilton book. He's a very nice man, very nice. Yes,
0: I know he is. He's terrific. Um, And Shiloh Brooks, who is the new associate director. Um, And then all of the fellows. Um, And uh, that includes some faculty, but um, mostly it includes uh, people who are there just for the year to do their own work. Um, And then there are also, there are luncheons at which, we present the work that we're doing at whatever <laughs> stage it is. So we're expected to, to do that um, at least once during the year, each fellow. Um, and there are lectures that are given. So we we've had we had a lecture on Constitution Day from a Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Uh, we just had Matthew Continetti here to talk about conservatism uh, in his new book. On that topic, um, we've had um, other lecturers speak on uh, a number of topics uh, of the day, and um, so just about every Thursday there's there's a kind of formal lecture, and I've been very impressed, I have to say, not only with the fellows, um, but also with the the undergraduate students at Princeton at these at these lectures. The the James Madison Program has a habit of calling on students to answer questions during mm. a, a, an hour-long Q and A after the lectures, and those students are terrific. They're they're asking questions with great confidence and and having listened very carefully, their questions are are challenging but they're s- civilly, respectfully presented, um, and there are some there are some future leaders among those students.
1: Wonderful and maybe maybe they will be chronicled by Xenophon someday is, is... <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting to me that you're you're covering a wide range of human experience from a, a German Jewish professor fleeing Hitler to Uh, people being persecuted by Cyrus the Great. So that's really fascinating. Well, thank you. I just want to say with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Timothy W. Burns, the author of the book, Leo Strauss on Democracy, Technology, and Liberal Education. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Many thanks, Hope, for your terrific
1: questions. Thank you. Mm